1: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
2: Hello, we are in celebratory mood this month on the Pubs Pints People podcast. I'm Simon and here with me is regular host Claire and this time we also have someone you won't have heard on the pod before, even though he's been with us since the very first episode.
3: Yes, David King has been our executive editor, driving the whole project behind the scenes and it's no exaggeration to say that without him there'd be no pubs pints people and we wouldn't be here making the 46th, can you believe it, 46th episode. So we'd like to say a big thank you to you David and welcome to the show.
4: Thank you, Claire. for that uh, very kind introduction, rather flattering, but executive editor, that sounds very grand. Uh, Actually, the eagle-eared may have heard me in the podcast uh, from Series 1, Episode 11, when I interviewed Angela and Gary Morton at the Wolverhampton Micropub during the pandemic. Um, I've been looking after the audio versions of What's Brewing and Beer for a few years, through which I got involved with mixing and editing the camera podcasts. So here I am, and it's exciting to be one of the voices this month.
2: Great, thanks David. Uh, Well, the theme of this 46th episode is a celebratory bruise, which ties in nicely with a rather special celebration coming up very soon, of course, as it is the Platinum Jubilee year of Her Majesty the Queen. With an extra bank holiday thrown in for good measure, cue the drum roll, the national anthem and, of course, a toast, at which point please
3: make sure you have a pint in your hand to say, cheers, Your Majesty. And I'm sure Her Majesty wouldn't mind at all if you say cheers a number of times because it is an extra long weekend. And Camera's currently running its Summer of Pump campaign to encourage everyone to head down to their local, pick a spot in the sun, remembering that it's a bank holiday weekend and they've changed the days of it, so that's confusing, but the sun might not know that and it might not come out anyway, and enjoy some of Britain's finest beer fresh from the pump. Most camera members probably don't need much encouragement, especially now that... Social restrictions are, hopefully and thankfully, a thing of the past.
4: And there are special events linked to the campaign. And if you go to the website summerofpub.camera.org.uk, you'll see all of them on a handy map. As for the Jubilee Weekend, there's something extra special. Camera's teamed up with the people organising the Jubilee Weekend celebrations to promote and distribute the special Jubilee beer called Thank Brew to pubs and clubs across the country, as well as lots of special events.
2: You can find your nearest venue serving the beer on on the map all the details are in the show notes if you didn't make a note of the website i'll just give that to you one more time it's summer the proceeds from sales of thank brewer are going back to charitable causes which is perhaps an extra incentive to try this new and limited edition beer no excuses needed to raise a glass to her majesty of course and her 70 years of service The beer is a 3.5% ABV paleo created by Fergus Fitzgerald of Adnams.
3: Yes, I spoke to Fergus uh, along with Christian Barden, who's an advisor to an organisation called The Good Beer Co. So I started by asking Christian all about The Good Beer Co.
5: The concept's relatively simple. It's uh, to make it easy to enjoy good beer and support a good cause that you care about. And um, the Good Beer Co. was founded by our learned friend James Grugin, based down in Australia, uh, who's got ties between Australia and, and the UK. And it's all about sort of good causes, good brewers, good businesses, and good beer drinkers uh, to do as much good as possible. So it's uh, you know it's very much uh, he was ahead of his time. You could almost argue it's a social enterprise. Price beer company, and he raises funds and awareness uh, for the good causes uh, around the world. So it's a it's a great concept, and uh, it's something that sort of Fergus and I have on board. With in order to help this particular campaign, which
3: is Thank Brew. Uh, let's let's move on to um, introduce Fergus, Fergus Fitzgerald from Adnams. You've actually come up with the recipe for this special beer to celebrate the, the Jubilee and to be the Good Beer Co's special beer for this year, Thank Brew. Tell me a little bit about the Thank Brew beer.
6: Well, I guess that the premise is really to try and make it as easy as possible for everybody. So usually we have a very specific recipe that you use these specific bolts you you use this yeast and you use these exact hops but for this for this recipe because we want so many people to get involved and we don't want people going out trying to find the the latest sort of fashion hop we want people to to get involved as easily as possible so actually everyone can do this and there's no excuses not to be able to brew it.
3: So the concept here is that brewers up and down the country will be able to brew this beer it's not just an Agnum's creation or an Adnams beer because I know you collaborate a lot with other breweries anyway but this is this is more than that sort of collaboration isn't it?
6: Yes, and I guess it's a little bit inspired by the the beer for Ukraine, where actually there was a, a recipe that everyone can get involved in. So we wanted to do the same thing. We, we, we will brew our version, but we also want other people to brew their version. So there's, everyone ha- gets to put a little stamp of their own on it. We'll use mostly some of the newer UK hops in our recipe, but some of those hops are hard to get. They're not plentiful. So we've tried to make the, the recipe that we shared with everybody something that they can sort of tweak and make their own, really.
3: Now, I'm sure, Fergus, you know as, as well as I do, that um, if beer is brewed to a different recipe, even if, for example, you know a different water supply or anything slightly different, brewed in a different building, beer drinkers will at least say they notice. And if if think brew is being brewed all over the place but badged everywhere, will the will the real die-hard beer drinkers need to go to every single pub in the country to make sure that uh, they've tasted every different possible version of it? That's
6: a, that's a fantastic idea, Claire. That's what people should absolutely. do they should go and find this beer at every pub they can find over that over that bank holiday weekend because it will it will taste different so as you say claire obviously the, the, the sort of raw materials we talk about like you know the, the hops and the malt they obviously people know they change the flavor but things like water and yeast have a huge impact on flavor and even the shapes of vessels the, the height of a vessel whether it's an open fermenter or, or a, a closed pressurized vessel all those things will change how the beer actually comes out so we yeah i think that's a great idea claire i fully endorse people going around the country to try and find as many different variations of thank brew as they can
3: well christian i think it will be quite easy to find lots of different- different varieties of, um, of Thank Brew, because I imagine quite a few pubs are very keen to get involved in this campaign.
5: Uh, yes, we've had tremendous traction so far. Pub companies as big as Punch uh, Pubs putting their support behind this, as well as uh, a number of some of the, uh, the big name breweries, you know, from Adnams, as well as working with uh, The Big Drop for the uh, 0.5% alcohol bearing that we've got. So the intention is to have a, se- a minimum of 70 breweries involved, uh, 70 obviously, falls in line with the uh, with the Jubilee and then uh, in a perfect world sort of over 5,000 pubs which is kind of about 10% of the UK's pub uh, and bar outlets.
3: That would be fantastic, uh, over 70 breweries, I mean I, I know there are hundreds of breweries um, around the country but could any brewery take part? So for example um, they don't have to be big breweries whether it's Adham size or, or somebody just brewing in a shed in their garden kind of thing so it's, it's really something that you want lots of people involved with isn't it?
5: It is something that we'd like every brewer to, um, uh, where they have the means to be involved, um, to do so and uh, and of course with 3,000 breweries in the UK then there's a, a wealth of opportunity for people to get involved and of course this is, Fergus touched on it beautifully, this is all about bringing communities together so um, uh, it's not just in the local pub, it's not just the local brewery but of course uh, it's, uh, it also extends to pub chains it also extends to street parties and the big jubilee lunch etc. So for breweries and and pubs to get involved, then it's www.thegoodbeerco.co.uk. Uh, follow that through to Thank Brew where you can download Fergus's Tremendous Recipes, uh, which in turn is where pubs can log their interest and download uh, information and point of sale for promoting uh, the event in their pubs. And uh, and what I should say as well is, uh, and we've only just found out today, that there's a record 50,000 people have already registered to host a big jubilee lunch, which links with this campaign and uh, that uh, there is uh, a record number of uh, 15 million people uh, expected to attend a big jubilee lunch um, over that long weekend as well. So we're connecting both the on trade and the off trade uh, together uh, to bring a, a unique experience and a fantastic opportunity. Uh,
3: that's fantastic. And I imagine that um, just sort of getting the, the, the collateral, if you like, out there, the, the pump clips, uh, you, know, you know, everything that is going to promote this, this beer, that must be a huge time as well
5: a huge task but taking care of the joys of um, the digital area that we live in that um, these things are, are downloadable as part of those pub POS packs or the uh, the brewery POS packs as well so um, it uh, it allows you to kind of move fast uh, and uh, and also make sure that the brand is out there uh, promoting uh, the good cause and uh, and saying a big thank you.
3: So, Fergus, we've talked a bit about the the alcohol version of the the beer, if I can call it that 3.5% version, I think it is, but you've also worked with Big Drop, not that far away from Adnams, just down the A12 in Ipswich, and tell me about uh, how that's come about.
6: Yeah, well, we know Big Drop really well. When the idea that came out that we actually, we also wanted a non-alcoholic version of the same beer, rather than ask every individual brewery to try and make a non-alcoholic version, which for some brews will be much more challenging than, than than others, we thought actually that was probably the beer that we should centralise. We should find somebody who's really good at making that. And although we do, Adams do make a, a 0.5, I didn't want this to be the Adams Road roadshow. It is meant to be about bringing people together. So knowing that Big Drop makes some, some excellent Excellent, um, 0.5 beers. I gave them a call, uh, and and actually they they jumped on board. You know, really wholeheartedly, really quickly. So, um, so so they're going to brew the 0.5 beer that will be available for everybody. Um, and there are obviously lots of events as well who who don't want to have alcohol at their event for whatever reason, but they will. So this will this beer will then be available for them as well.
3: Big drop out, a specialist brewery in in this market. Um, I imagine, though, that if they're if they're doing the whole lot for the whole country, that's going to be a a, a big ask, isn't it? A lot of capacity they'll need.
6: It is, um, and we hope it will be the largest 0.5 brew for charity uh, the country's ever seen so we, we need as many pubs and as many many people organising events to get onto the the website and register interest and, and they can start ordering that beer so it's so a big drop have a have a good idea of how much beer to brew.
3: And one more thing about the recipe but how do you know that they're going to get it right basically?
6: Uh, well I guess we we know the quality of the breweries they're signing up so I've got every faith that that people can uh, people can make a really quality beer but uh, as as long as they've got a beer that brings people together whether one beer is a bit hoppier or a bit darker or, or a bit more astringent than another uh, then I think as long as it's bringing people together that's really the main focus of
3: it. Christian we, we touched on there with Fergus about the charities involved and, and that really is key to the whole thing isn't it the thank brew the weekend um the even to a certain extent the, the summer of pub recognizing volunteers and supporting charities but that, that's a key element
5: hugely uh, important and um, uh, it kind of links three core charities Um, there's the Together Coalition there's the Eden Project uh, Communities and then there's uh, Reset which is about communities and refugees um, uh, who are homing um, uh, refugees from the Ukraine into the UK uh, as we speak and so the sort of, how should I say the collaboration of what we're doing, with the beer and the breweries and the hospitality sector is also benefiting the capital collaboration of three charities that are really intrinsically linked in doing uh, well for local communities and and, and building local communities, bridging divides in local uh, communities to create a more kinder and more connected environment.
3: So get out there this weekend and have a beer. Let us know how you got on. Uh, Let us know at Pubs Pints People on Twitter with pictures and stories. Keep an eye on Insta as well because we'll be posting a selection of the best. Uh, We have a Facebook page. And, of course, we're interested in any royalty-themed beers, ciders or stories. Maybe you could send a selfie with a beer and a royal, if you know any, or <laughs> just a very special beer that you've been saving for a celebration like this. We'll watch out across all our social media platforms for all your pictures. And I, I don't know whether you've had any celebratory, royal, special beers, guys, that, um, that you'll be drinking this weekend?
0: Ooh,
4: I haven't this year, but at the risk of embarrassing myself, I'm, I'm one of these people who buys a commemorative bottle of something and then never quite gets around to drinking it because it's special, and so I kind of save it and I've <laughs> I've been to the back of the cupboard and as I say at the risk of embarrassing myself I found a bottle of M&B beer celebrating Wolverhampton's thousandth year that was from 1985 and the one that's even more embarrassing um, a Holden's bottle here called Prince's Pleasure commemorating the royal wedding on the 23rd of July 1986. Wow um,
3: that's probably worth something
4: you reckon? I, th- I think it's probably sour inside, thinking <laughs> of what happened. But <laughs> if anybody, yes, if anybody thinks they're of value and they think it could help a charity, I'd be happy to donate them.
3: I, I've also got a, a few beers stashed away on my my beer shelf of bottles that were brewed for special occasions and have, have never been opened. May um, may need to do with football though, but um, and I, I can't reach them to to tell you the dates, but they're probably of a similar vintage, I I would reckon. Makes Um, me feel better. More up-to-date though, I have been trying um, Robinson's Queen's Tipple, a bottle of which I picked up in a supermarket, um, because I thought, you know, if if they've brought it out, especially for the Jubilee, you've you've really got to try it.
2: Gosh, well there's no way I can compete with uh, David's rather (laughs) special-sounding beers, but um, when I I moved house back in March, it was a good chance to uh, clear out my beer stash under the stairs. And in amongst it, I found some bottles of uh, Fuller's Vintage Ale, including some doubles. So over the uh, Jubilee weekend, I think I'll be tucking into a bottle of the 2015 Fuller's Vintage Ale.
4: I do fancy trying this thank brew, though. That sounds, that sounds really good. Now, as with all the episodes this season, we're on tour around this great nation of ours. And this time we're in Glasgow, which is seeing the return of its Real Ale Festival, all happening on the 16th to the 18th of June. Most of us go to beer festivals and are served beer and cider in excellent condition and I'm sure camera members would expect nothing less. In this season of podcasts we've been getting a real insider's look at beer festivals and today we're going to hear from a festival steward.
2: Well you might actually wonder what does a festival steward do? Well don't worry because we've got one here to tell you all about it. Let's just say it's it's a vital and largely unsung role. Obviously they're the first port of call for visitors to a festival. They keep everyone safe throughout the duration of the festival and do whatever is needed to keep the show on the road. Remember all camera festivals are run by volunteers and that includes the stewards. Walter Ross is one such volunteer festival steward at the Glasgow Real Elf Festival and I spoke with him earlier so here he is to give us the lowdown on his role and experience as a steward. Walter, some of us only ever attend festivals as, as customers, so what's it like being on the other side of the fence and, and volunteering for a camera festival?
7: It's actually a very, I find, rewarding experience. to I say, over the years, I've been volunteering now at festivals for about 30 years and over that time I have met a lot of very, very good friends, so I find it very rewarding.
2: 30 years, that's a very long time, so what sort of roles have you held as a volunteer in that period?
7: Majority of the time I have been stewarding. I've done a couple of other jobs at festivals as well. I have helped out on the bars run times and I have worked on glasses and reception and other work as well. But the majority of the work has been stewarding.
2: Okay, and just thinking about that role as a steward, what would a typical few days as a volunteer steward look like? What sort of um, issues do you get called to deal with and what sort of challenges are you presented with?
7: Hopefully a a festival you don't have a lot of challenges. Everybody behaves themselves, everything goes as it should be. You can have a very uh, successful festival in terms of a stewarding point of view. A typical steward's duties is normally at the front door, you're greeting the customers as they arrive. And it's always good to have a cheerful face when people arrive. Within the festival itself, it's mainly just so keeping an eye on things, making sure everybody's enjoying themselves, obviously dealing with any issues that arise, things like uh, broken glasses, things like that.
2: Are there any particular qualifications you need to have or do some of the stewards hold an SIA or other licensing?
7: A number of the stewards do have uh, an SIA, Security Industry Authority, a license as door supervisors. But as a camera steward, you don't necessarily need to have that license. There's a lots of different jobs that stewards can do that don't necessarily need to have the license to do.
2: And just thinking in terms of the of the Glasgow Festival that's coming up, so how many uh, volunteers uh, make up the stewarding team?
7: We'll have about eight volunteers on the stewarding team during the, the four days. They won't all be there at the same time, but they'll be there at different times.
2: And what sort of um, shifts would you typically work?
7: Stewards can actually can actually be a long shift for stewards. In general, for most festivals, stewards are usually the first people there and the last people to leave because we've got to be there before everybody else to get everything set up and control entry. And again, we're usually there at there at the end. There's no fixed hours. The whole thing is people work the hours that they can they can work because it is a volunteer. But there are people who will be there from you know so ten o'clock in the morning up till eleven o'clock, half past eleven at night once everything's all tidied off
2: obviously we're, we're speaking about your role at, at glasgow today but um do you volunteer at any other uh, beer festivals across scotland or or even further further afield
7: oh yes i volunteer at festivals across the uk basically we do a typical year or well, certainly not in the last few years but so prior to everything we were i was probably doing between six and seven festivals a year
2: of those, I guess it's a similar similar sort of role across each one, similar sort of challenges or is there anything that's um, stood out from your experiences as a steward over the years at the different festivals?
7: Every festival is different. Every festival has got its different challenges, you know, uh, one of the festivals I do is Cambridge, which is uh, an outside festival, you know, so it's a tented festival outside, which is a different stewarding technique to what you would do in something like Great British Beer Festival Olympia.
2: I haven't been to Cambridge myself, but I've been to the the Ealing Beer Festival, and that's always outdoors in a park in a couple of large marquees. As a customer, it's a completely different experience, and when you get good weather, there's 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 nothing better than enjoying the the beers that are on offer.
7: That's the thing. The good weather makes an outdoor festival. If you have weather, whether it's a little bit climate and raining, and it can sort of have its own challenges in an outside festival.
2: My sense is that a big part of volunteering is the, the camaraderie that you get from working with other, others and the social side of things. So, h- how do the volunteers unwind at the Glasgow Beer Festival?
7: At the end of the, the night, we'll, we'll sort of get together, have a chat, maybe have a, have a beer before everybody goes off home. Usually, at the end of the festival itself, there's usually it's like a, kind of a staff party. Everybody just sort of unwind when everything's finished, you know.
2: And I guess that's a chance to drink any of the beers that are left. Or do you tend to have staff bars as well at some of the larger festivals?
7: Some of the larger festivals will have a dedicated staff bar area. But most of the sort of smaller regional festivals, usually just a selection from the main bar that staff would get, you know, either during the day. Typically when you're stewarding, especially if you've got your SIA license, you're not actually drinking until the end of the evening when uh, everybody's out and officially off duty.
0: Yeah,
2: that's quite a different experience from, I guess, if you're volunteering behind the bar. My experience is I've seen some volunteers who are able to, to sample the beers that they're serving, but I suppose when you're in a, in a security role, it calls for a different approach as a volunteer.
7: Yes, that's it. You know, as I say, we've got to deal with people we can't really be seen to be drinking ourselves. I also cover first aid as well at some festivals. So again, for that role, drinking before doing anything isn't advisable, you know.
2: Just thinking in terms of anyone who's who's thinking of attending the the Glasgow Beer Festival during June, do you have any top tips for them or things to look out for or any, you know, secrets from behind the scenes that you'd like to share?
7: The main thing with the festival, it can get busy. Most festivals is limited seating at, so be prepared to to stand for a little while. There's not always going to be seats available. If you can, pre-purchase tickets. That's a good way of making sure you can get in. I
2: was looking on the on the festival website before we spoke. It looks like there'll be a great range of beers, but also some spirits and some, some wines and possibly some meat available as well. So there's a little bit of something for everyone, I guess.
7: Yes, I've found over the years that having alternatives to beer encourages more people to stay longer, you know, especially if you get couples arriving, you, know, you got one who's into beer, one who isn't. You tend to find them they'll only stay for a few, a few beers and leave. Whereas if you've got alternative drinks for people, you know, people stay longer and it just makes a better experience for everybody.
2: And um, just thinking beyond the the, the, the festival and, uh, the, you know, the wider Glasgow region, um, if any camera members or listeners to the podcast are planning to visit over the coming months, which, you know, pubs or, or tap rooms would you recommend people put on their to-do list?
7: There's a, quite a few pubs in Glasgow. One that I sort of frequently re I uh, think, is the uh, State Bar on Holland Street. That's a very good one. Uh, another one's is also, also the uh, Bon Accord in North Street, and both of these are actually fairly close to each other. They normally have a, a reasonable range of beer between the two pubs.
3: Yeah, I think we should all raise a glass to Walter and all the other fabulous volunteers who make our beer festivals happen, because let's not forget that many beer festivals have been absent for the last two years, and... Some are only just now returning, so we have links to all the camera Beer Festivals in the show notes if you want to check out the latest information for your area. And don't forget, of course, the Great British Beer Festival is back too. That's the 2nd to the 6th of August, and tickets are selling fast, so don't miss out.
2: Now correspondent Alison Tafts is chatting with Adam Green from Old Street Brewery, which actually started off on an incredibly small scale, but now makes amazing, one-of-a-kind and great celebratory brews.
8: So I'm here with Adam Green. I just wondered where you are in the world.
1: Yep. so we are the brewery and myself where we're located in Hackney Wick uh, in East London.
8: So (laughs) it doesn't sound like a Hackney accent you've got there, Adam. So uh, where are you from originally?
1: Yeah, so definitely not from London. uh, This is very obvious. Uh, I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona. I've been here in London for over six years now.
8: And were you brewing before you arrived in London?
1: Uh, not in any sort of commercial sense. So I did, you know, home brewing sort of just on an amateur level. Um, it wasn't really until I moved to London and saw the way the beer scene was here. It was very much still sort of not in its infancy, but it was still quite young. Um, and it was just the thought that, you know, if there's ever a time to start a brewery, now is the time.
8: So tell us, how, how's it been? How have you sort of established yourself?
1: I Basically, bought my first brew kit in the summer of 2016, and just started homebrewing. You know, two, three times a week. You know, spending all my money that I had on hops and grain. You know, I a lot of homebrewers and uh, you know commercial brewers will identify with that. It's a passion that just kind of takes over everything. You stop going on trips. You stop, you know, paying for anything else. You're just buying hops. You know, and grain. Um, every little piece of equipment you get your hands on i got the opportunity from uh nigel mother kelly's the owner of mother kelly's he had a pub under near king's cross queenside pub and he had a little hundred liter brew kit there gave me the opportunity to brew in there so did that for about a year with uh the co-founder andreas and so we just sold beer to the pub above. and then that was that was a great opportunity for us to kind of realize okay do we actually want to do this you know for real and the answer was obviously yes uh so we went out and uh it's a weird thing, you know, trying to ask people for money because we didn't have a lot of money ourselves. Uh, we kind of landed on 50,000 pounds as the target that we need to start the brewery, which in hindsight, way too little about money. Um, it definitely, it's a, I would never do it again for anything less than, you know, sort of six figure money. But, you know, it, the, the beauty of starting a company when you're, you know, don't know much about what you're doing is the naivety is a blessing. With that same brew kit, uh, we took it out of the Greenset Pub and then brought it to an archway in Bethnal Green. And then just sort of built some tables, built a little bar. And uh, over the next couple of years, just slowly, you know, upgraded the brew kit and uh, went from that 200 liter brew kit to, uh, we ended up buying the pressure drop, the old pressure drop kits yeah. in, uh, yep. it was early 2019. And that really changed things for us, you know, cause the quality of the beer was able to go up dramatically uh, with, you know, sort of the the higher quality kit and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then in November, 2020, we took on the Hackney Wick site. which was definitely a risk cause it was, the you know, the height of the pandemic but it was such a great opportunity it was right next to Halling hops brewery uh crate uh truman's is brewing right there very much uh, up and coming area and then the on-site uh sales there at hackney wicker is just great summertime you know the bar is full of people the whole area is just full so it's allowed us to kind of relax a little bit and then focus on the wholesale and sort of um you know focus on the quality of the beer a lot more
8: Um, Tell me, you've got some amazing looking, uh, huge imperial stouts that look distinctly uh, special occasion to me.
1: So one of the big ones we got is our pumpkin stout. So we brew that once a year. Um, It's called 24 Hour Pumpkin People. As soon as the harvest comes out, we get an entire pallet of pumpkins. You know, not not your typical jack-o'-lantern pumpkin. These are, um, you know, ones that uh, high quality ones that you eat. And then we go, we chop up every single pumpkin, skin it. And then we chop it into small cubes. Then we put it into uh, ovens for 30 minutes and pour, smash it down, pour honey on top and then cook it some more. And then we put about 300 kilos of this pumpkin into the mash, uh, with, you know, some barley and grain and oats and stuff like that. And then we do two mashes and then we do multiple boils, super so boil. So that call it would call 24 hour pumpkin people. It's only, it's almost a 24 hour brewing process to get this beer. In. And there's a reason why we only do it once a year because it is very time consuming to do it's not something you can make every week obviously pumpkin beers in america you know it's sort of like if you you know the pumpkin spice latte season kind of comes around october november uh, in america it's a big thing uh here in the uk we're trying to make it a trend but um it is a bit of a struggle convincing people that pumpkin beer is good because it's loaded full of cinnamon and allspice and nutmeg uh cloves and vanilla so if you're if you're not uh, you know not familiar with these sort of pastry stouts it is like what the heck is going on in this beer
8: i see that you've done a, a f- no figgety imperial stout as well which looks super rich
1: so we did that one with deviant dandy brewery that was uh one of our first collabs we ever did um and so we brewed that one twice uh this last batch we actually uh, rum barrel aged it over at uh deviant dandy and that one is uh it was for something we brewed a tonka bean had just come out you know as well it hadn't just come out i say that it was it was just kind of getting on the uh, eye of, you know, sort of the culinary beer world. Uh, and it's, Tonka bean's amazing. It never had it, it has very much the sort of a cinnamony sort of vanilla uh, taste to it. So we, built, you know, brewed the, you know, the big imperial styles from a base and then we put some, uh, I think it was figs in there. And then obviously the name No Figgity comes from. And then put the Tonka bean in there and then barrel aged it for six months. It's one of those that, you know, a, it was our first time doing any barrel aging, but you really do see what barrels can bring to a beer if it's done properly. And it really did just add a whole level of complexity being in those rum barrels as opposed to the original beer that we uh, produced.
8: And and you also make some really sort of big and impressive looking uh, double IPAs, I think.
1: Yeah. So we, uh, our first, I mean, so we've always sort of made double IPAs cause I love the beer style. Uh, Pliny the Elder is my favorite, favorite beer in the world. Um, and I've never had Pliny the Younger, you know, we're talking Russian River out in California. Yes, uh, it's one of those beers I've always wanted to get my hands on, but unless you're in San Francisco in February, you can't get it. Um, <laughs> it's very selective. So one of these That's days we'll a... make it out there.
8: Well, where would you sort of say those big double IPAs? Where do they fit in?
1: Uh, for me personally, you know, Imperial Stouts, you know, big double IPAs. I typically start off, you know, if I'm going, it's a Saturday, I'll drink, I always start out with a lager. You know, lager is my favorite beer style outside of a West coast IPA. Um, Start out there, sort of cleanse the palate and then sort of make the way around, around the beer world. uh, Sort of getting those double IPAs. It's definitely not a a hot summertime beer. Um, You know, it's uh, it's more of a, You know when it's a bit colder you know the bigger beers a lot more sugar a lot more body on them Um, you don't want to drink when it's 25 30 degrees out necessarily Uh, but the for me as as from a brewing perspective when you get these bigger beers what you're able to get out is a lot more flavor you know so nothing against pale ales and sort of these you know other hoppy beers when you start getting higher abv the way that the alcohol interacts with the hops is where you really start to get a lot of big punchy flavors you know especially when you get these big hops the mosaic the citrus the centennials Uh, Coming out of Yakima Valley, that's where you really get just a much different beer at that higher ABV. Um, You know, big beers just have so much flavor in them.
8: Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking there we've got this opportunity with food matching with these styles. Mm -hmm. What sort of meals would you suggest with those kind of big dippers?
1: Yeah, it's a good question Um, because it's it's the I mean it's almost a beer that I would have after a big meal. You know, something like it's like especially when you talk about the big stouts. Uh, they are a lot of times dessert beers, you know, so after you've had your big meal, and then you kind of sip on them, you know, or sip on them throughout the meal. Uh, me, for when I'm eating a meal, like I really like the Lambics, you know, having like a nice canteen or something, table beer during a meal, that's, that's you know, the way that I like to go. Um, but the big beers, yeah, they're very much just sort of like an end of the night, you know, sort of uh, nightcap, I think yeah. in a lot of ways.
8: Sounds amazing. As I say, I'm looking forward to get my hands on some of that. So when you're Absolutely, celebrating yeah. yourself, um, Adam, and if I say you can't drink one of mm-hmm. your own brews, what sort of beers do you reach for to, you know, have in front of you in that, in those special occasions?
1: Being American and being over here in the UK, there is something about American beer um, for me. Uh, you know, obviously craft beer started in, in America, you know, sort of the late seventies or the eighties and really took off in the mid nineties. What you get from that is the, uh, the skill and the innovation that we're seeing in america is just further developed uh in, than it is in most parts of the world but then the other place that i look for is towards belgium so a big fan of uh big uh, mixed fermentation lambic beers um and you know the styles that these guys and girls have been doing for decades and centuries over there and it's only the craft beer revolution that kind of turned everybody to belgium is like wow these they're making incredible beers over there consistently and they're doing things that, you know, if somebody told me that, hey, you need to use hops like Cantillon does from 1995, you know, before you knew what that style was, you'd look and say, why are you using 25 year old hops? But they use these old hops and these barrel aging techniques uh, to make absolutely special beers that you can't get anywhere else in the world. Um, and there are a few producers here in the UK that are they're doing a great job as well as in the US, but there's nothing like a, a Belgian mixed fermentation uh, beer, in my opinion. And that's, if I'm really celebrating something, and I really want to get a nice bottle, that's where I'm going to go to Uh, more than anything is those nice big lambics out of Belgium.
8: So you're very much uh, Belgian influenced and obviously you've mentioned a couple of American. Any other American brews that uh, are great for these occasions?
1: Like I said before, Russian River Pliny the Elder is absolutely my favorite beer. Um, I'm a big fan of the West Coast IPA, West Coast double IPAs. Uh, but obviously the New England IPAs have really taken off in the last four or five years. And there's been the UK beer brewing scene has been massively uh, influenced by the New England IPA. So you start talking about Treehouse and Trillium and, and uh, the Alchemist out there in uh, sort of just outside of Boston, uh, Vermont sort of areas. Um, and then there's a lot of other, you know, we've got side project um, over in sort of the middle of the country, making absolutely some of the best barrel aged beers in the world. There's Casey Brewing out of uh, Glenwood Springs over in Colorado. Uh, doing some amazing mixed fermentation stuff, and really the big the big thing for me. Uh, there's over nine thousand breweries now in America, so every time I go back, I realize how far behind I am in the beer scene. Always a new brewery doing something really innovative and so something cool. Most of the time, when I go back to the states, I'm just seeking out these these really big innovative beers uh, to go and try them, and and then to try to take those techniques, bring them back here to the UK, and figure out okay how do we do this.
8: This is a really hip, a difficult question, but I always like to ask it for brewers. What is your desert island beer, Adam, if you could only take one beer with you?
1: Yeah, I think that's got to be Augustiner. Hell's Lager, absolutely. It's just, if I mean, Lager is my, my typical day-to-day drinking beer. Um, not macro Lager, obviously. We're talking sort of a craft or more traditional German-style Lager. But if there's one beer that I was going to drink forever, it'd be... Augustina for sure.
8: Adam, any other advice or tips for our, uh, our beer loving friends here, especially if it's a special occasion they don't mind spending a few extra pounds?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think for just the, not sort of special occasion, but just in general, I think the biggest thing uh, for a beer consumer uh, is, and this sounds a bit ridiculous, but just drink a variety of different beers. There are so many amazing beer styles out there in the world. Every time you have one of these beers, whether it's an alt beer uh, from Dusseldorf or, you know, a a cold from cologne or anywhere that really specializes in something, you can get the top quality product. You really just develop those taste buds to allow yourself to appreciate all these beers. So it's just going out, trying different beers from the best producers um, and just exploring everything that's out there developing your palate.
3: pumpkin stout sounds a bit more like a a pudding to me but I'm not keen on pumpkin pies and things like that either but the the pastry style now big in the US apparently and they say that when America has a pastry we have a full British breakfast so who knows what style of beer that could inspire you don't really have to worry too much about food pairings as Adam was saying with these big flavoured beers they're almost like a course on their own like an aperitif or a dessert wine dare I say.
4: A lot of brewers do look around the world for inspiration, just as Adam has with America and Belgium. And there's a lot going on wherever you go these days. Now that the world's opening up again, Camera's released a new book by the celebrated beer and travel author Tim Webb called Beer Breaks. I've got a copy, it's very good. And he's highlighting 30 different beer destinations that are easily reached from
2: the UK. But some people, of course, do prefer to stay more local. And quite a few have been asking Camera for UK based ideas, as well as a handful that are in uh, Tim's new book. We've launched a competition to get some local knowledge from our members and beyond. Anyone can enter using the books template to propose their local beer destination and explaining why it's so special. The winner will be printed in the winter edition of Beer Magazine and the author will receive a nice case of some of the beers featured in the book.
3: Well, Camera's also releasing the world's greatest beers on International Beer Day in August, with 250 of the globally best beers that are available here in the UK. They've been specially selected by a panel of eight beer authors, influencers and experts. You can pre-order now, details as ever in the show notes. And now we're moving on to our special feature of the podcast. We're only here for the beer, um, or possibly cider, perry, and other drinks but mainly beer. It's our regular section about pubs that we've visited and loved that you'll find in the Good Beer Guide and uh, possibly also pubs where we might not have been yet but we're looking forward to visiting them and with the Jubilee weekend in mind I suppose perhaps pubs that we might feel appropriate to visit over this weekend. Which pubs have you been looking at? Um, start with you Simon.
2: Sure, well having moved house uh, back in March, I'm still exploring some of the pubs in my local area down here in Surrey. Uh, I'm actually hoping to visit the Old Swan in Chertsey, which when I was looking through the Good Beer Guide, uh, describes it as offering drinkers and diners a mellow experience with its shabby chic interior, which definitely sounds interesting. Uh, but of more note uh, for this weekend is that the pub will be hosting a beer festival on the 3rd and 4th of June, uh, so I'll be definitely popping along to see what they have to offer.
3: Uh, well, I can I can top that because I've also got a pub with a beer festival for the Jubilee Weekend, um, but I've got one better. It's called The Queen's Head. You think that, you know, we don't produce this stuff, but uh, hey, we, we do. Um, the Queen's Head, it's at Ersham near Bungie. It's uh, it's actually in Norfolk, um, right on the border with Suffolk. They've got their beer festival on Saturday, the, the 4th of June, and they're a, a pub that... Uh, I think they have a couple of beer festivals a year, generally. They serve local beers uh, like Lacon, Ampersand, Three Blind Mice. They have food trucks visiting with pizzas, burgers and and so on. Um, I've not been there yet. One of the the few pubs in this part of the world that I haven't managed to get to, but I shall certainly be trying to get there, hopefully, for that beer festival.
4: Uh, I'm also going for a Royal-linked pub, the Royal Oak in Compton Road, Wolverhampton. Uh, it's uh, Banks's Pub, so of course uh, Banks' Mild will be there. I do, I do like a glass of mild myself. Royal Oak, named after, of course, the, the tree, which is popular with hiding royals, which is uh, in this area, and Bosqueville. The pub is described as bustling, with open mics on Tuesdays, live bands on Fridays and Saturdays, and uh, raising a lot of money for local and national charities too. We've got one more interview for you. Alison Tafts is in the chair once again, and this time with Oliver Meckler, who's brewing up some very interesting stuff in the Netherlands.
8: Oliver, thank you very much for joining us today to talk uh, about special brews, particularly celebration brews. But first of all, I'd love to know where you're talking to us from.
9: Thanks, Alison. Uh, Yeah, I'm talking to you from uh, Enschede, as you would pronounce it in the the Dutch language or the Dutch uh, slang. Everybody knows Amsterdam. It's right in the east of the country, let's say the other side of Amsterdam, right next to the German border.
8: So you're brewing there, aren't you? But I understand that you didn't start life as a brewer, did you? Tell us how you got into this wonderful industry.
9: I'm actually a winemaker and beverage technologist. I don't know if you can still hear it from my accent, I'm actually German by birth, and I studied in Geisenheim as a beverage technologist. So I actually left for South Africa, I lived in South Africa for 14 years, and I got into the brewing industry, and uh, also started my own company there, uh, brewing beer, distilling whiskey, making wine, giving workshops, and so on so i'm a trained winemaker but also a brewer and distiller by heart
8: wow so you, you really have covered all the bases there you must have an incredible technical knowledge which is, is really interesting and what, what were you distilling oliver
9: we run a, a, a company called the copper or translated a copper star and our main product is whiskey so dutch whiskey which is not very common it's fairly new on the market uh, we've been busy now for almost six years and we're going to release our first whiskey within this year so actually very exciting time so that's, that's our main product and thereafter we do also do uh, make beer and our special product uh, yeah that's we'll talk about uh, later
8: that sounds pretty exciting I can't wait to get my hands on some of your Dutch whiskey is it is it something that is going to be uh, exported do you think
9: yes we're going to export it we're we small very crafty uh, operation so the, at the moment uh, we're producing like uh, 20 barrels that is approximately 8,000 bottles a year so we're going to start very slow with a couple of thousand bottles but our aim is to, to stay small not more than eight or ten thousand bottles a year but it will be internationally available if they don't drink it all here in the Netherlands. Uh, I think
8: yeah that's what normally happens isn't it with a small brewery as well. So tell us about this brewing and blendery that you're involved with?
9: Okay, so look, uh, being a winemaker, I was listening to my dad. My dad always says, son, you don't need to be the best uh, in in one thing, but you need to be doing what nobody else can do. So seeing that I'm a winemaker slash later become a brewer, uh, I had the idea of making a champagne beer. Now, champagne beer is not new. Uh, Champagne beer has been done, in Belgium, it's been done for many years, but uh, I wanted to do something really with a wine fermentation. So the start was actually in South Africa, there still as a hobby brew, Before I started my own brewery, and we did 50 liters of what we call the strawberry blonde, which was a blonde ale with 20% of Cabernet grapes. And it was, to my knowledge, at least the first time that a brewer used real grapes in the beer, not just pasteurized grape juice, but real grapes. So that's where we started, and uh, that was 15 years ago, I guess, uh, so in the last 13 years I'm now in the Netherlands. And uh, I have a good old friend actually from your side of the water, Steve Gamage from uh, the Bronncaster Brewing Company. and we said, we need to make a collab. And I said, "No, let's make champagne beer." <laughs> so we started a little bit bigger than 50 liters. We started with 2,000 liters. And uh, Steve brewed the beer in his uh, company and I did the champagne to it.
8: It's fascinating when we start to get into this world of blending wine making and brewing. So give us a bit of a a pricey of how it works.
9: Just stop me if I'm getting into the real technical stuff. Now we brewed uh, 2000 liters of a light amber ale with a more or less neutral hop bitterness. Not a really outspoken beer, just a a good base beer. It was 7% alcohol. After we fermented the beer through, We put it in the cold store. Then the second step uh, was we used the mesh tun. We added 20% in weight of Pinot Noir grapes on the skins. And that's where it becomes very special. Not pasteurized grape juice, as I mentioned before, on the skins. I'll made a a wine yeast starter, and uh, we started fermenting for six hours. That doesn't sound long, but wine yeast is very aggressive. So after six hours, we pumped the fermented beer on top, and uh, within two days, it was going wild in the L'Ottetan. And uh, the wine yeast managed also to eat all the remaining sugars that the beer yeast didn't touch. So we get like a slightly pinkish drink, which you normally associate with sugar and sweetness, but bone dry. So that product went again in the cold store. We settled out the yeast, and in the meantime, I prepared the champagne yeast for the third fermentation. So it's first beer, then wine, then champagne. So we needed to bring up the make a yeast starter that was done for a week. And slowly but surely, you, you're adding sugar to bring the alcohol level to uh, approximately 9.5%. So the aim was to bring the yeast to the same level so the yeast feels very comfortable. Further, we added more and more beer to it, so the yeast could also adapt to the environment beer. Thereafter, we had quite a large amount of of yeast starter, like 150 liters, and we added to each of the champagne bottle with a syringe, added the yeast. What we added as well was sugar, and usually a beer is 1.5 bar in the pressure. In champagne beer, or also in a champagne, you want five to six bar. So we added actually 18 grams of sugar per bottle uh, to bring it to the five bar. Then we put a crown coke on top and uh, we kept it in a warm room for approximately four weeks. So the yeast could ferment all the sugars in there and produce the, the CO2 and the pressure. So these bottles were then stacked and went into the cold store for nine months. In this nine months, what happens is the big beer bubbles, they were falling apart under pressure. So from a very big CO2 bubble that you see in a beer foam, in a beer bubbling, we're making very fine CO2 bubbles. In French, in the champagne, they call it the mousseux. After nine months, we taken out the bottles, put it in a rack. Following the champagne process, they were riddled. They were basically turned once or twice a day for the duration of two weeks. so all the yeast would go down the neck and collect on top of the crown cork. Once we collected the yeast, it's approximately a centimeter of yeast layer there. So we wanted to get the yeast out. So we have an an equipment that freezes it with glycol at minus 27 degrees. Now I'm getting a bit too technical, I know. (laughs) Uh, At minus 27 degrees freezes an ice block. That ice block contains the yeast. So you can turn the bottle upside down. You take off the crown cap. It gets a hell of a bang and shoots out uh, through the whole brewery. We're shooting out the ice block with the uh, immobilized yeast containing the yeast and we've got a clear product.
8: That's an incredibly uh, lengthy and painstaking process that you went through there with that particular beer. And the big question, how did it taste?
9: Okay look obviously it's my baby and you love uh, you love your baby no matter no matter how it looks like <laughs> so it's only 20% of the volume of let's say of the ingredients is grape but the taste is really half half there's a lot of elements of beer in there but also a lot of elements in wine so you can really taste both of the elements both of them are, are really there and you get the feeling of the champagne you get the bubbles you get also the visual of that monsieur we also mm. designed a special glass which was a like a champagne glass but a little bit wider so resembling a bit more like a, a good beer glass like a craft beer one and we put a, a little rough spot in there in order to uh, release the, uh, the bubbles like duffel does uh, uh, in their glasses yes. so you get that effervescence of the of the co2 bubbles
8: so with all of that trouble and time and effort it seems certainly a beer that suits for a very special occasion and a big yes. celebration, definitely. Is it commercially available uh, that product, Oliver, or is it just just for your nearest and dearest?
9: Uh, it is commercially available. We're just getting our website revamped. It's uh, the corporate there, so it's available directly from us at the moment only, and through the company uh, for my for my good old friend uh, Steve uh, Gamage from Broncoster.
8: And what's it called,
9: Oliver? Basically called Symbiose, or in Dutch, or Symbiosis. And it's called, uh, we've got three at the moment, uh, two are available right now, which is the Pinot Brut. That is the one with a 20% Pinot Noir. We didn't call it Champagne beer because it's not, yeah, as you know from Champagne, it's not allowed. But also we didn't want to. We, we call it the Brut, it gives you enough indication of being a Champagne method. And then we also have a blonde Brut, but that is almost sold out. What we did is, instead of using uh, actual grapes, we used grape sugar, just to give it a variation there. That is more leaning towards the beer side and the Pinot Brut, that is really the wine side. There's a new project that I'm having, it's called the Nelson Brut. Basically, it's an IPA brewed with 100% Nelson Sauvignon hop. It was the most expensive beer ever brewed because the hop was not available. I had to buy it from all over the country. And uh, there we, I added 15% of already in fermentation the juice from, the, uh, from Sauvignon Blanc from Germany, from a good friend of mine.
8: So uh, what other brews have you been creating alongside these amazing uh, champagne beers that you've been making?
9: Seeing that our whiskey is now coming into, uh, starting to sell, we're getting uh, more and more whiskey barrels available. And uh, I started now to do barrel aged beers and I brewed a an, an double bock and I made an ice bock with 13.5%. So basically froze out 40% of the water. The remaining was a product with 13.5% and that's now resting and maturing for nine months in my first whiskey barrel which contained Oloroso sherry then our whiskey now it's uh, the beer is in and it will be bottled soon and that is something seeing that we will have up to 20 barrels of 250 liters available every year where we release the whiskey sell the whiskey the idea is to go into barrel aged
8: Wow, so that also sounds like an incredible special occasion drink. That sort of powerful ice beer. That idea. It's it's a, a very unusual technique here in Britain, but I know it's yes. something that gets uh, that gets used in Germany and other countries.
9: With my German background, it's obvious that I had to do that. <laughs>
8: <laughs> Absolutely. If you were going to be celebrating and you wanted to reach for a beer to celebrate, uh, I was going to ask you which ones you choose, perhaps one of yours and perhaps something else that you've been inspired by.
9: It changes, like, uh, yeah, your your mood changes. But at the moment, it would be the symbiosis uh, Nelson Brut. That's really that that wine character has got a little bit of that cherry in there, it's matured. And uh, through Covid, well, it's maturing much longer, so it's really like uh, matured and, and ready and yeah uh, like smooth and velvety so that would be at the moment from my own beers would i prefer and then anything from uh, my good old friend steve gamage from uh, the broncos the brewing company give me any time any beer from that brewing company i will be happy to celebrate
8: you've been incredibly inspiring in terms of just the uh, the lengths you go to to create some what sound like amazing brews i shall be on that website looking for a bottle right away
4: We had an episode on mixed fermentations back in season one, episode nine to be precise, and from what Oliver says, it sounds like something we could revisit. It seems like there's still plenty of room for invention and innovation if you follow Oliver's mantra of what can I do that no one's ever done before.
2: I definitely feel the need to crack open some of that champagne-style beer, which really must be the ultimate celebration drink. It actually reminds me of a barrel-aged Imperial Pilsner from Camden Brewery, which comes in at a hefty 11% and I got to sample last year. Whiskey barrels and beer also seem to be very natural partners in crime if you like a dram. It's a bit like a Scottish half and half but of course all in one glass. I think that's whetted our all of our appetites for the long weekend and I hope it's done the same for everyone who is listening.
3: And before we sign off, we do just have to talk about our last orders, as we do every episode. Uh, Now, at uh, this time in last month's episode, I said that I hadn't managed to pick a mild, but I would definitely drink a mild during May and have it as my last orders for this uh, edition of the podcast. And so I've done just that. I tracked down ampersand fast fashion it's a 3.6 percent ruby mild it's a, a vegan ale as well and it's one of their seasonal beers i've mentioned ampersand on the podcast uh, many times before and uh, yeah i i really liked this one actually i'm i'm not used to so much to ruby milds um i prefer the sort of darker milds but i really enjoyed this one and i'm not sure that it'll still be around now that mild month is out of the way but hope to see it again in another mild month or this time next year
2: I recently had a uh, Railway Porter from Five Points, the Hackney-based brewery and I sampled this in the Express Tavern near Kewbridge in London. Uh, I think it comes in at around 5% and it's a glorious example of uh, a porter and it was so good that it's this type of beer that once you've had the first pint you just can't resist going back to the bar for the second.
4: And I'm still celebrating Mild Month, as I do all year round. I'm here in the West Midlands so mild is uh a good local drink. And I'm uh, having Pig on the Wall from Black Country Ales, uh, 4.3%. It's described as a refreshing chestnut brown beer with a complex flavour of light hops, giving way to a bittersweet blend of roasted malt. It's named after, I think it's an occurrence in the 1800s when uh, lots of pigs were kept in backyards and there was a procession going by and somebody put the pig up on the wall so it could see the band passing by.
3: I bet it enjoyed that um, but uh, that's <laughs> not a beer a, that I'm familiar with but it sounds well, a good one
4: they're a, a kind of growing chain across the West Midlands they keep sort of adding a, another pub or two every year but they have mild, their own mild on throughout the year and it's a lovely drink
3: Uh, i shall look out for that one now we do need to say a few thank yous before we close um our script today written by mark Lavert. um also thanks of course to david king of this parish paul hadfield and simon clark as well as simon price for all their help with this show and we'll be back next month on wednesday the 6th of july we'll be looking at diversity and inclusion in the beer sector that's a really important topic that's gaining more traction All the time, we'll be talking all about it. But until then, cheers!
5: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
0: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How does a free case of beer sound?
3: Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer52 by going to wwwbeer beer52.com forward slash people that's the numbers 52 in the 52 and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95 and what's more as a special offer for our listeners they'll throw in two extra beers for free so that's 10 unique craft beers.
2: Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent.
8: So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia, Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others.
3: And if dark beers not your thing, you can choose the light only case. Also included is the ever insightful ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if after all that you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time.
2: So head over to www.beer52. That's the numbers five and two. dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of ten beers now.